Welcome back, listeners. This week, we traveled to St. John the Baptist Parish in Louisiana to talk with Ashley Rogers, the executive director at Whitney Plantation and a PhD student in history at Louisiana State University. Whitney Plantation, a historical rice, sugar, and indigo plantation established in 1752, is the only plantation museum in Louisiana with an exclusive focus on the lives of enslaved people. We sat down with Ashley after she led us on a tour of the grounds where we learned about the 350 people who were held in bondage at Whitney for the 100 years it operated prior to emancipation, as well as the lives of the free men, women, and children who continued to live and work at Whitney until the late 1970s. One of the most poignant sites we visited at Whitney Plantation was the Freedmen's Church, called the Anti-Yoke or Antioch Baptist Church. The name itself speaks freedom, and it was the only black church for miles on the east bank of the Mississippi River. This tour was, by far, the most well-researched and respectfully delivered plantation tour I've ever been on and we are grateful for a space that serves as a site of remembrance and healing. In our conversation with Ashley, we discussed how the museum was created and why it was important for the creators to focus exclusively on the history of slavery in Louisiana. We also talk about what this site means for the thousands of people who visit it every year. I'm Kelly Vines, and this is About South. We are here in southern Louisiana at Whitney Plantation, and Ashley just finished giving us the most thoughtful tour and the most thoughtful plantation tour I've ever been on. So um, we're very lucky to be able to sit down with Ashley, who is the executive director here at Whitney Plantation. Um, And to start along this strip of road next to the Mississippi River, there are a good number of plantations that have been converted into museums. What makes the Plantation Museum here at Whitney different from some of the other plantation museums that are along this strip? So there are two things that make Whitney Plantation different from other plantation museums. Um, Certainly the first reason that we're different is that our entire focus is on slavery. So we do discuss the owners of the plantation, but only in so far as they interacted with enslaved people. So people need to understand who owned the plantation, understand the structure, but really the bulk of the tour is focused on the people that they were enslaving. Um, The other reason that Whitney Plantation is pretty different from really any plantation museum um, is that we're a memorial site. So it's not just a standard historic site. Um, We have created a series of memorials and we use artwork to help visitors, um, number one, understand the history in a different way, I think, Um, but also it's really critical for us that we provide a space for visitors to reflect and to grieve and to um, think think about the enormity of the history itself. Why was it important for you to focus on the lives of the enslaved people who lived here 
And how did you approach researching, um, doing all of the research that went into the memorials here? Well, so the idea to turn it into a museum focused on enslaved people was John Cummings, our founder, who purchased the property in 1999 and worked for 14 years to, um, or 15 years, to open the property to the public. And uh, he worked with Dr. Ibrahim Asek, uh, who was a, a historian working in Senegal. And he ended up coming here to work full-time, maybe a, f a few years ago, eight years ago or so, thereabouts, but had been coming back and forth um, with his post at the university in Senegal and then coming here in the summers. And so he did much of the archival research to find the names of people who were enslaved here and the history of the plantation itself um, leading up to the opening. The large memorial that we have, um, which is named in honor of Gwendolyn Midlow Hall, that was the research of Gwendolyn Midlow Hall, who is why it's named for her. So she was a historian um, previously at Rutgers. She's originally from New Orleans, and she's the person who built the database of all of the people who were enslaved in Louisiana for the first 100 years. So we've used her research and then also Dr. Sex's research in getting the museum open. And then um, since we opened, we've been doing more research about the later period uh, because we have a lot of original documents related to um, the early and mid 20th century on the plantation. What did this space look like before the Civil War? Well, this is something that I try to paint for the visitors that I think it's really hard to communicate because you see it how it looks now. And there are all these beautiful decorative trees everywhere and we have these ponds and things and it really doesn't look like a plantation space at all. Um, the important thing to remember about Louisiana plantations in particular it, is that these are, it's industrial scale agriculture. And so what that meant was that most of the land space was dedicated to the cultivation of certain crops for export on the market. So in that case, um, in the 19th century here on this plantation, that was sugarcane and rice. So most of the fields would have been dedicated to the cultivation of sugarcane and rice. Um, they also had some pasture land for cows that they raised on the plantation and various other herd animals like sheep. Um, they also had swine um, and chickens. So a lot of that space would have been dedicated to that. But what I mean when I say industrial is that the thing that makes sugar plantations different from other types of plantations is that there's a factory here too. And so the factory is the part of the plantation where you see the industrial scale uh, processing and production happening. And so um, oral histories from the early 20th century say there were no trees on the plantation. Um, the few photographs that we have, we have some aerial photographs of the plantation that back that up. Because if you think about it, any place where you put a tree, you can't put a crop that's going to make you money, right? So um, there were these distinct kind of residential spaces on the plantation, but it's 1,700 acres, and most everything else would have been fields. I have heard this myth repeated that Louisiana plantations were somehow better for the people enslaved on the plantation. Is there any truth to that? What was the, what was the life of the folks who were living here um, and enslaved here? 
What did that look like? Yeah, that's a funny thing that people, I'll actually say that I think people say that everywhere. Um, And I think that it's really rooted, not in any kind of real history, but it's rooted in a sort of denial, right? That people want to imagine that their people, here we did it better. We weren't like those bad people in X, Y, and Z, right? I come from North Carolina and you hear the same thing there. Um, There's a particular brand of it that you hear in South Louisiana that I noticed as soon as I moved here, which I found so peculiar. Um, And I think it comes from this idea of what the Code Noir was. Um, The Code Noir, which is the the Black Code, um, passed in the French colonies. And so Louisiana was subject to the Code Noir. And people who haven't read that document but have understood some things from it have taken from that understanding that there were protections for enslaved people. Um, And the thing that people most, there are two things that they most um, talk about. One, that they were to be baptized in the Catholic faith. And two, that their children could not be separated from them, from mothers. Um, But the Code Noir does many other things besides those two things. And you could argue that perhaps the first is not so great what's necessarily beneficial for people for being baptized against their own faith Um, but the other thing that the code noir does is that it lays out in explicit terms the ways that enslaved people can be brutally punished on the plantation and i think that if you look at the literature and by the literature i mean slave narratives from the 19th century that the mythology that enslaved people carried with them about slavery in louisiana was very much the opposite you know, and there's a reason why even today we say that people were sold down the river. And we understand that when you say sold down the river, you mean that someone has been cast off or forgotten, right? They're being sold out. And this is where they're getting sold to. That river is the Mississippi River, right? So um, there was an idea among enslaved people, particularly those people in the upper south who were being bought up by the Georgia men, you know, and taken down to Georgia, or then later on by the big firms that were taking people down the Mississippi and the Atlantic seaboard, that being sold south was a death sentence. So we're here on a plantation that was mainly focused on processing sugar and rice. How is, how is work here different from work on cotton or tobacco plantations that um, listeners might be more familiar with? Right, so cotton is probably the most famous product that enslaved people grew, and in fact, you know, much of the Deep South was dedicated to cotton cultivation. And certainly cotton cultivation was known for its extreme violence and um, the hardships of, um, that was on that were on the workers right tobacco is fundamentally a different crop and i think it's important to understand how tobacco fits into the wider story of enslavement because um this is part of so the the region in the u.s where people were taken from plantations and sold down south was the tobacco those were the tobacco regions so maryland virginia and north carolina and tobacco is critical to why there was an enslaved population to purchase and sell down south so there's several reasons but number one um, tobacco plantations are oftentimes much much smaller so one thing that's happening between you know a tobacco plantation a cotton or sugar plantation is that you have a workforce on a tobacco plantation a large tobacco plantation might be 50 people 
but really might operate with 20 or might operate with 10. Now, what happens on that plantation when these women are giving birth on those plantations is that there are people available to be sold that they don't actually need for the cultivation of that crop, right? So crop systems actually have a lot to do with the creation of that domestic slave trade, whereas in cotton and sugar, and especially sugar, where the death rate was so high, much higher than the cotton South, higher than the tobacco South, there was a need for constant replenishment of the slave labor force. So, um, you know, there are, everyone is enslaved and, the, and slavery is violent and people are exposed to deprivations on all types of plantations. But it is important to understand how those different crop systems affected the labor force on those plantations and how that played into the wider um, story of the domestic slave trade. So you mentioned that the labor on the sugar plantation was often quite deadly. Um, I think you might have mentioned this on the tour, but can you reiterate how many how many enslaved people died because of the labor economy and the hard work here? Yeah, so um, the historian who I usually cite when I talk about this is Michael Tadman, um, who has uh, an article that I train all of the interpreters here on called The Demographic Cost of Sugar. and. It's really interesting because he ha he looks at sugar as basically as a deadly crop in and of itself. So he puts it in sort of a global context and talks about the death rates in the Caribbean and South America, but says that in South Louisiana and the sugar parishes, which there's a very tiny part of the U.S. where they can even grow sugar. So Louisiana, parts of Texas later on, Florida didn't even really start until after slavery ended. So it's just this little tiny, tiny area. Um, but in those sugar parishes in Louisiana, they stand out as the only part of the slave South that had a negative growth rate among its enslaved population. So whereas in the Cotton South, there were positive growth rates, Tobacco South, positive growth rates of about 20%. Um, in South Louisiana, it was negative 13%. So more people were dying in Louisiana than were being born to replenish those people who die. The children were dying at young ages. And so that also drives the need for those laborers. You know, why do we need so many people here? We need so many people here because they have gangs of people out in the fields. They need a crew is 70 people on a, on a um, sugar plantation. Our plantation operated with two crews. We didn't even have enough enslaved people here to operate two full crews. They would have had to rent people, right? So the labor demand is so, so high. Part of that is because of the labor. Part of that is because of this fact that people were dying, you know? And they're dying not only because of the labor and the nature of the labor itself, which is certainly a part of it, but it's also a part of where does sugar grow? What, what's the environment in places where sugar grows? Think about the disease environment here. Yellow fever and malaria were common. Yellow fever in particular was taking out people in New Orleans. But here in the countryside, malaria is a part of that story too. Where does that, where do mosquitoes, you know, build all their nests in standing water? Where do you find standing water? On a rice plantation, right? There's plenty of standing water all around. So these are factors, but also um, the fact that, you know, young women, young girls were having babies, that's a part of it. Um, malnutrition is very much a part of it. I mean, the common diet on sugar plantations in South Louisiana was bacon or fatback, um, corn, 
grits or you know you can make bread with it but cornmeal uh, molasses and coffee right so enslaved people are really on their own to supplement that diet you know and make it a little bit more nutritious but these are the factors that play into you know all of these incredible death rates that you see here of listeners maybe one of the things that has been surprising for me as somebody who's visited numerous plantations at this point is that post-emancipation life here didn't materially change for a lot of the enslaved folks who had lived here pre-emancipation can you talk a little bit about that about how what this looked like before the civil war and how that changed post-emancipation mm-hmm so there's very little difference on a sugar plantation between slavery and freedom i mean and certainly if you want to look at the let's say 25 years leading up to freedom and the 25 years after freedom i mean you're you're basically looking at the exact same thing it starts to change a little bit in the 20th century because we didn't have labor laws until the 1930s and labor on sugar plantations was um was dictated by the sugar act so this happens in the 1930s and that kind of sets wage rates and changes things a little bit although plantation owners are kind of still figuring out how to make this um let's say something closer to bonded labor but basically um so i'll i'll tell you this story through the there's a story of a man who's enslaved here and i think that his story kind of shows us what happens so there was a man who uh, he was in his early 20s when he was sold from Virginia by a slave trader named David Kume and put on a ship to be taken down to New Orleans. Um, that was in October of 1852. And he was in New Orleans or in transit and then in the city until January of 1853. Um, his name was Manuel Fulford. And this is why we've been able to know a little bit more about him is because he has a first and a last name. So he's a little bit easier to track. Um, so he was purchased by Marie Azalee Heidel, who was the last owner of this plantation in January of 1853. She bought him for $1,500 at the um, St. Louis Hotel in downtown New Orleans, and then brought him here to her plantation where he was to work as a cooper, which is a barrel maker. So he was enslaved here from 1853 until 1860. He's still on the inventory. So he's been enslaved here for seven years at that point. And he stays enslaved here until he runs away to go fight with the Union during the Civil War. So Maria Azalee Heidel, the last owner of the plantation, died in November of 1860, six months prior to the start of the Civil War. And her estate couldn't be settled because the war is here and people are preoccupied. But what also happens, because as you know, the, the Union came to Louisiana almost immediately. And as soon as the Union is here, this is really disruptive on the sugar plantations. So enslaved people are running off of their plantations and basically refusing to be enslaved. The 1863 Emancipation Proclamation does not apply to the sugar parishes. They're called out by name at the end because they're already under, under union control. So 1863 doesn't free anybody. What frees people is an ordinance in 1864 
So Confederate Louisiana outlaws slavery, right? And so Manuel Fulford, he has run off and he's fighting with the Union for years. And you might think, as I would imagine, that fighting for the Union and then being a part of the occupying army after the war until the end of 1865 might afford him kind of a better situation. He's gotten away from the plantation. He was in St. Charles Parish. Um, when he was discharged from the army, he met a woman named Rosetta, who he ended up marrying. But what happens is that, so that's 1865. By 1868, he's right back here on this plantation with his wife. And he stayed on this plantation, and so did she, until he died in about the 1890s. And so he was working in 1868 on this plantation for 60 cents a day, doing the exact same work that he had been doing during slavery. Um, his widow fought for a widow's pension um, based on his service in the Union Army. But this is about the best that somebody could expect. So if you think about somebody who has given service of their life to fight for the nation, right? And even they have really no access to a betterment of their circumstances. Um, the other thing that happens is that very, very shortly after the Civil War, the Louisiana uh, sugar planters start an organization called the Louisiana Sugar Planters Association. And what this is, I mean, what it became known as later on was a cartel. This is really what people called it. Um, at the very first meeting of the Louisiana Sugar Planters Association, the 1870s, um, a man by the name of Bradish Johnson, who owned Whitney Plantation, comes to the meeting and says, you know, I really think that we should all bring our worker contracts here just to compare them and make sure that they're all kind of in line with one another. So as soon as the organization has started, the first thing that they're doing is fixing wages. Right? So what does this do really to the labor market on sugar plantations? There's this brief moment after the war where workers have a little bit of power, right? So if this planter's paying more and this planter's paying less, they can leave this one and go over here. But as soon as the planters have gotten together and have started to organize among themselves, there is no competition in the labor market. The wages are set. Um, so they also start to do these other kind of pernicious practices, like it became common practice on many plantations not to pay workers until the grinding was done. So they would withhold pay for months at a time to ensure that they would stay. Because this is really critical. How do you keep workers on a plantation? I mean, people didn't think sugar plantations would work without slavery, right? Um, because the nature of the labor is so difficult, why would anyone do it voluntarily? The planters know that. Right? So they create these systems that basically re-entrench slavery. They're just not calling it slavery. And that persists. I mean, the plantation store, which sold goods to the workers at inflated prices and then became a system of debt, that's a part of it. There's a lot of different ways that the plantation owners maintained this system of slavery. And really what you see is a system that looks, even from a visual standpoint, a lot like slavery. You have the owners still living in the plantation, big house. You have the uh, formerly enslaved workers and their kids still living in what used to be the slave cabins. So even from that standpoint, you have an overseer, still the same overseer, right? So everything has basically stayed exactly the same, um, which is different from the system of sharecropping, which is also a system that was based in debt and deeply oppressive, but did give workers some measure of autonomy. 
even if that autonomy is imaginary, right? Even if they don't really have a lot of power, they have a parcel of land that they're responsible for. That's not what's happening here. There is no land ownership, right, on a sugar plantation. Um, so it becomes very, very difficult for people who are working on sugar plantations, living on sugar plantations, to break away from these plantations, even generationally. Um, I've well documented on this plantation that the same family was here. You can see I've got receipts from the store for three generations of one family. Grandpa was in debt, dad's in debt, grandson's in debt, you know, so it followed families. And you had mentioned that people lived in the two existing slave cabins up until 1970? In 1975, yeah. 1975. Mm -hmm. So over 100 years post-emancipation, mm -hmm. you still have people being born and living their lives mm -hmm. in these slave cabins and still continuing to do the labor that their ancestors were doing mm -hmm. under slavery. Yeah. people reacted to the tours here and the spaces um, of memorial that you have? I think that our, it's largely positive. Um, and I think that, you know, you can look at, like, for instance, I think that a good representation is just look at our TripAdvisor reviews and you can see how many people are saying, this experience changed me. This is, you know, necessary for all Americans to go. I mean, this is the type of feedback that we're getting on the ground, online. You know, people say these things to us. We have a visitor reflection wall and they're writing about that. Um, part of that is because our messaging is pretty strong. You know, we're not hiding what we do from anybody. Um, and we do occasionally get people who came here and didn't know this was gonna be what we talk about, um, who maybe are disappointed, but it's so rare, you know? And I think that really, even people who came here and wanted to see a big house, which we do occasionally get some, even they are not really, I mean, it's just so rare that anyone would complain, you know? Um, that's just not happening. I, I think that what's really there are a few things that happen here that i see regularly that are really remarkable um one thing is that we have a very very diverse audience so roughly 35 to 40 percent of our visitors are african-american um roughly 45 to 49 percent of our visitors are white and the remainder is split between um, native americans um, asian latinx so it's a super, super diverse audience, especially in terms of normal museum visitation. And something that I see here regularly is visitors interacting across a color line in a meaningful way that I don't think you see very much of in this country. People, are, people open up to one another and talk about their families here. Um, people have talked to me, people have told me really, um, 
deep, important, traumatic things about themselves uh, on all sides. I mean, people who have ancestors who enslaved people, people whose ancestors were enslaved. And I just think that so often what we do in this country is we bottle that up and don't talk about it. And people get scared to talk about race because they're worried they're going to say something wrong. They don't want to offend people. But there is something about the experience of being here that I've seen open people up in a way where they feel a little bit more okay with being vulnerable. And it's something that I don't even know that we're necessarily intentionally cultivating that. But there is something about this experience that does that for people. And um, I've noticed that from the very beginning. It's something that I've always really loved here. So right now, Whitney Plantation is um, a memorial and a site where people can come to learn about the legacy of slavery. What do you see this space looking like? And what do you hope for? this space to accomplish in 25 years? So this is high on my mind right now because um, we are entering this or, or in the middle of a strategic planning process. And so we're thinking a lot about where the institution is going to go and kind of the, uh, the shorthand version that I've been saying to people is that I don't want Whitney Plantation to just be a different type of plantation tour. I don't think that's interesting. And I don't think that's really where our impact is. I want Whitney Plantation to be an institution that happens to be on a plantation in the middle of a sugarcane field. Um, so what that means is that's a, that's a, there's a variety of things that I think that we can get engaged in, some of which are involved in this five-year plan that we've written, and some of which are much longer term. Um, you know, high on our mind right now is developing a um, site plan. So how to use all of the resources that are currently here. There's so many things that we can do that we don't currently do, we don't have funding for, we don't have staff for, right? Um, we need to build a new visitor center because we have outgrown the visitor center that we currently have. Uh, this year, in 2019, we'll see about 105,000 visitors which is um, a drastic increase because in 2015, our first full calendar year, we had 34,000 visitors. Wow. So we're seeing massive um, growth in terms of visitation. And so if I'm predicting roughly about, you know, comfortably, let's say, a 10% growth per year, then at the end of five years, we're gonna be 150,000, but we already don't have enough space for the 100,000 that are coming right now. So. Lots of things are on our mind. And the things that are on our mind are basically guided by how do we serve our visitors the best way that we can? Because we're really a visitor-driven organization. What do our visitors need? And also, how can we make the message that we have reach as many people as possible? So that's why things like doing events in the city, which are free and open to the public, are really important to us. That's why um, you know, another of my goals is to build a digital humanities project that would make some of the resources that we have here free and open to the public and available online for anybody to access. Um, our new visitor center that we are gonna be planning to build, this is a big process, will have all kinds of resources for visitors from the most basic creature comforts because we understand that people can't learn this history if they are 
if they're not being taken care of, right? And so we have to think about what, what's it like to be a visitor here? It's hot, you're dehydrated, you're hungry, you want to sit down in someplace cool and talk to your family that you came with or your friends that you came with. Um, so we're planning a space that would have some more reflection area, but that would have enclosed seating and a cafe so that people could sit down with a meal afterwards and talk about it. But they would also have classroom space and space where we can have offices and all kinds of things. I mean, one of the things that we've thought about for years is do we build some kind of a, a conference space here? So a place where researchers could come and do an intensive or do you know an artist retreat, things like that. So there are a lot of different ways that I think we can use the space creatively where it's not just a plantation tour. You know, It is a, um, a resource for people who come here in person, but also a resource for people who can't visit in person. Um, so those are the things that are kind of that are high on my mind um, because I think that plantation tourism is not actually that interesting and I don't know that it how much longer of a lifespan does it have <laughs> you know what I mean it's um, people have been doing it for decades and uh, you know you can change the narrative at plantation tours but if all the space is intending to do is show visitors around a few houses how is that doing work in the world you know and i think that we're a mission-driven organization we need to be doing work in the world that's more significant than that That's our episode for this week. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Ashley Rogers and all the folks who work at Whitney to convey this important message to visitors year-round. About South is produced by Gina Kaysen, Ajwa Danzo, and me, Kelly Vines. This episode is brought to you from Atlanta, Georgia. Brian Horton provides our music. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. You can find us at aboutsouthpodcast.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at About South Pod. We'll be taking a break next week, and we look forward to bringing you our final four episodes after that break. Until then, be kind and remember your history. <laughs>